Uh, good evening. Uh, I want to uh, say thank you uh, for your welcome. Lots of you have come and talked to me. In fact, to be honest, it's a bit overwhelming for a shy English introvert. I mean, my word, you can talk, can't you? <laughs> Here's what I've noticed. You never use ten words when someone will let you go on for at least a hundred. And if you run out of things to say, you just repeat yourself. You just say it all over again. Uh, the other night, uh, I was given a little crash course in uh, Northern Irish culture. If you were here on Wednesday, you will have uh, seen that. I thought I would give you a little introduction to English culture. Uh, here's a quote from a book by an anthropologist called Kate Fox. Uh, she writes about the English. She's English herself, and uh, she writes about them. And uh, this is how English people do greetings, how we, how, we do, how we meet one another, okay? The only rule one can identify with any certainty in all this confusion over introductions and greetings is that to be impeccably English, one must perform these rituals badly. <laughs> one must appear self-conscious, ill at ease, stiff, awkward, and above all, embarrassed. Smoothness, glibness, and confidence are inappropriate and un-English. Hesitation, dithering, and ineptness are, surprising as it may seem, correct behavior. Introductions should be performed as hurriedly as possible, but with maximum inefficiency. Hands should be tentatively half-proffered and then clumsily withdrawn. If you are socially skilled, or you come from a country where these matters are handled in a more reasonable, straightforward manner, such as anywhere else on the planet, you may need a bit of practice to achieve the required degree of embarrassed, stilted incompetence. So if any of you have come up to me and, and wondered why I was so bewildered and confused, I hope that gives you a little insight. I wonder how your social etiquette is. Are you good at this kind of thing? Do you know how to, to behave in social situations? In a previous life, I attended a meeting at the offices of the World Bank in London. And as we arrived, we were offered coffee, uh, which I don't drink because it's evil. <laughs> I, I know how to win an audience and how to lose one. <laughs> So I said, uh, I said, do you have tea? To which the reply was, we don't serve tea in the mornings. <laughs> and I was firmly put in my place. My etiquette was not up to scratch. Now what we've seen all through this week is that meals are a wonderful occasion for a kind of context for welcome and community, for grace and love. But they can also be occasions for the opposite. 
people can use food and meals to kind of reinforce their status and privilege, to make other people feel like outsiders. You remember when the Apostle Paul confronts the Apostle Peter? Because of this, because, because he's losing the plot on this great theological issue of justification by faith. Do you remember what the presenting issue is? Who you eat with. Who you have meals with. The Apostle Peter was, had stopped eating with Gentile Christians. Meals had become a mechanism for kind of expressing exclusion. It's the same when Paul has to write to the Corinthians and tell them that their Lord's Supper isn't the real thing. Their Lord's Supper had become a way of expressing their differences rather than their unity in Christ. So meals are a very powerful means of inclusion, but they can also be a powerful means of exclusion. And that means we need to get our etiquette right. Now I don't mean how you set the table, or which hands you put your cutlery in, or your, you know, whether you eat with your mouth full, though I'd rather you didn't, by the way. What I mean is, what we might call the etiquette of grace. Gospel etiquette. How grace shapes our meals. Which brings us to this rather strange piece of advice that Jesus gives in verses 8, 9, and 10 in the passage that we just read. Did you think this was a bit strange? When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat, then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. What is that all about? What is Jesus doing, giving this etiquette advice? What is he doing? It seems like he's giving you a few tips on how to get a social boost. Well, the answer is that he's using the meal table as a picture of something much bigger, a much bigger reality. Right back at the beginning of the gospel, This is what Mary sang as she heard the news that she was going to bear the Savior. She said, God has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. In other words, what is happening to her, little old Mary, being the kind of host, as it were, of the Lord Jesus Christ, carrying him in her womb, that's a picture of a coming day when everything will be turned upside down. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. A day is coming when God is going to turn this world upside down. Those who think they are righteous will be condemned. Those who think they are powerful will be deposed. Those who think they are important will be brought low. Meanwhile, those who mourn and lament their sin will be justified. Those who are despised by this world for the sake of Christ will be vindicated. 
Those who give of themselves in the service of others will be filled with good things. And so Jesus is saying, get yourself low. Humble yourself. Don't pursue earthly wealth and glory. Serve others. Suffer for Christ's sake. Because one day, everything is going to be turned upside down. And God the Father will come and say to you, Move up to a better place. Move up to a better place in the wedding feast of the Lamb. And that's what Jesus says. That's his punchline in verse 11. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. He's not just talking about where you sit at a party. He's talking about the whole orientation of your life. To seek wealth and honor in this life is a very short-term strategy because a great reversal is coming. You need to live in the light of eternity. Now, what does that look like in practice? What are we all going to go away and do in order to live out that reality? Well, have a look at verses 12 to 14. Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. What is the great feat that uh, you are going to be sent from New Horizon to achieve? The great task that God is giving to you this year to go home and do the kind of heroic act of service that he wants you to perform. Share a meal with those in need. It's so simple, isn't it? All of us can do it. You don't need any special training. You don't need to carve out time in your schedule. It, it, it may be costly, but it's not complicated. All of us can do it. And it's so simple. But it's also powerful. Around the meal table, you provide for the physical needs of the needy. But a meal table does so much more than that. Think about the dynamic that's going on if you give someone a handout. What's the nature of the relationship in that situation? Well, of course, you're the benefactor and they're the beneficiary. What's highlighted in that kind of transaction is your ability and their inability. It's very easy for that to become patronizing. Maybe even to reinforce their sense of powerlessness. But what happens around a meal table? Well, we, we sit at the same level. We literally sit at the same level. There's no kind of higher and lower. We're all together around the meal table. And so instead of beneficiaries and benefactors, you have companions. Do you know what the word companion, where, where it comes from? Who's, who's got the Latin? It literally means someone who eats bread with you. That's what a companion is. 
Eating together makes us friends. And so a meal table has this potential to kind of create this this togetherness. But even more than that, to, to meet not only people's physical needs, but their spiritual needs. Because around the meal table, we talk, we share, we confide, we tell our stories. You get to tell your story of God's work in your life. We tell the story of Jesus. Now, I don't think this passage means that we can never invite our rich neighbors or uh, our friends and relations, nor do I think we we should only define poor in economic terms. In your context, it might mean an elderly neighbor or a harassed mother or a lonely church member or a young person who needs mentoring. The point is, the key point is, that what is driving your guest list is not self-interest, but a concern for others. Let me give you a few thoughts as to what this might look like. A couple in our church lived in the same street as us, as my wife and I, and so my wife and and, um, and, and her, the, the wife of the couple, leafleted the street, asking if any of the women on the street were interested in a book club. And so every month, uh, They would come round and have cake together, drink wine together, and to be honest, as far as I can work out, they would then discuss which book they were not going to read for the next month. (laughs) And then they started um, doing, watching um, Great British Bake Off together. Uh, And then, but someone would, would, you know, two or three people would bring whatever was the theme for that week. They would bring. The, the appropriate baked goods so that they were kind of eating them together while they watched the program together. As a result, one woman started reading Mark's gospel, coming to church. Another family in the church did uh, pizza night, so they made a whole load of pizza dough and then people turned up with a load of toppings. You sort of brought your toppings, made your pizza, shoved it in the oven Lots of uh, rather creative uh, pizza making going on. And just a whole kind of family event and evening with this kind of constant stream of pizza coming out. Another one of our community groups uh, has particular concern for international students. And so every Sunday they just had a kind of standing open invitation to Sunday lunch. They would get 30, 40 people you know, eating food all up the stairs and everything. And some people came to church and then came, other people just came for the meal. But a great way of connecting with international students and again, seeing people converted through that. Now the point of these stories is not that they're remarkable. Our church is not big, people are not super saints. This is just ordinary people doing ordinary stuff. There are none of those things that you couldn't do. You know, the church will never outperform TV shows and music videos. You know, zapping up your, your Sunday morning gathering is never going to work. I read recently that when you uh, 2 go on tour, have you heard of U2? No, I'm joking. When you 2 go on tour, it costs half a million pounds a day. 
your little local church is not going to compete with that, is it? Ever. It's never going to be a spectacular. But there is nothing like the community life of your church, of the love of your church. Nowhere else where such a diverse group of people come together. Nowhere else where the broken people of this world find a home. Nowhere else where grace is experienced and where God is present by his spirit. Uh, My wife and I, uh, two or three years ago now, read. uh, we were reading the Bible with a young woman called Hannah. And to be honest, it was great fun because it was her first contact with the gospel. It was all new to her. And she kept saying, you don't really believe this, do you? I can remember the look she had on her face as we were reading the story of the ascension. And I was about to sort of leap to the defense and I thought, actually, this is a pretty weird story, isn't it? A man is just floating up into the clouds. This day is pretty weird. She told our church later, I thought you were all crazy, but somehow you managed to hold down jobs. (laughs) She was terrified of what her family would say, but she couldn't keep away. She loved the Christian community. And after about a year, she became a Christian and was baptized. But here's how that story started. Uh, Hannah was, she was a colleague of my wife. My wife was a teacher and she was one of her colleagues. She was engaged. Hannah was engaged. And then out of the blue, her fiancé broke it off. And of course, as you might expect, she was devastated. And uh, it came around to kind of Valentine's Day. This was shortly before Valentine's Day. And so uh, my wife invited her over. We were having a kind of takeaway one Saturday night. And she came and joined us. There were a couple of other Christians who were, just sort of happened to be there, as it were. I don't remember any great conversations, any great gospel conversations that took place that night, though probably we talked about Christ at some point, as you do. The next day, she sent a text to my wife, and this is what it said. Your home and the people in it were a place of refuge. That was her first contact with the Christian community. And once she had kind of smelt the fragrance of the gospel, she she couldn't keep away. And so let me invite you to look back over the past month and think about who you've had in your home, who you've had around your meal table. What is it that has driven, been driving your guest list? Is it self-interest? Or is it a concern for others? Now how can we sustain this? Maybe this week you've been uh, fired up, I hope so, with enthusiasm to invite all sorts of people round. But what about when you find yourself having to kind of keep the conversation going? Actually, that's not going to be a problem for any of you, is it? That is literally what's in my notes, but that's just a waste of time. That's for an English audience. What about those awkward social moments? What about when you're left clearing up after everyone else has left? 
What about when your children complain because the TV is out of bounds again? How are we going to sustain this enthusiasm? Well, I think in this passage that we've read, Jesus gives us two great reasons for sharing meals and particularly for sharing meals with those in need. And we've kind of met the first one already. Let's call it the perspective of eternity. Jesus gives us, in verses 12, uh, 13, 14, Jesus gives us two options. You can invite your rich neighbors or you can invite the needy. And in both cases, you will be repaid. Did you notice that? Verse 12, if you invite your rich neighbors, Jesus says, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. Now look at verse 14. If you invite the poor, although they cannot repay you, Jesus says, you will be repaid, same word, at the resurrection. So you've got two options and both of them lead to payback. The key thing is, Do you want to be repaid in this life or do you want to be repaid in eternity? Do you want to be repaid by your neighbor inviting you back to sort of to their house so that they can drone on about you about the the, um, fuel efficiency of the new car they've bought or show you their holiday snaps of their holiday in Benidorm? Or do you want to be repaid by the Lord Jesus Christ with all the glory of a new creation in eternity? That's your option, okay? It's up to you. I I don't want to pressurize you one way or the other. You can be repaid by people or you can be repaid by God himself. In fact, if I might be so bold, I think Jesus is saying, put yourself in God's debt. Do you remember the words of Proverbs 19, 17? Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. Now you can't earn your salvation, we'll see that in a moment. Yet amazingly, graciously, we can earn a reward from God. Everything you give away now to serve God or to serve others, you get back in eternity. And by the way, eternity lasts a long time. God will not leave you in his debt. The second great motivation that we see here to share a meal with the needy is the perspective of grace. We are to show grace because we've received grace. We're to be generous to others because God has been generous to us. We're to share hospitality because we've been shown hospitality. Or to put it another way, You and I are needy, needy people and God has welcomed us to his party. And that's the point Jesus makes in this this parable of the great banquet. Verse 16, Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it, please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out, please excuse me. Still another said, I've just got married so I can't come. Now sending a kind of double invitation, was, that wasn't unusual at the time. You kind of got an initial 
invitation and a reminder. I guess the equivalent today would be a kind of uh, save the date note and then a more formal invite. But in this story, the second invitation is met with excuses which frankly are rude. You wouldn't buy five yoke of oxen and then try them out. That would be like buying a second-hand car and then test driving it. And what about I've just got married? Kind of just got married because otherwise the two feasts would clash. So what he's saying is, I'm busy with my wife. That's too much information. (laughs) This This is a brush off, no doubt about it. Now here's the point, you've got to remember who it is that Jesus is talking to. Look at verse 1, one Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering of a normal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent, so taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. He's talking to religious people. These are people who've reduced knowing God to a set of religious rules. They've constructed a way that they think will make themselves good enough for God. And their main concern is to protect their status. And so they want to derail Jesus and his his subversive, topsy-turvy, upside-side-down message of grace and what's striking is that that they invite this sick man but not not in any way in the spirit of uh, Jesus saying invite the poor the blind the crippled the lame no they just want to use him they want to use him to test Jesus and and trip up Jesus they're not concerned for his needs he's simply a tool These are the people that are too proud to come to God's banquet. They don't want to mix with the other guests. Their concern is their status. So who is it who does come to the banquet? Verse 21, the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Does that ring any bells? It's the same group of people we met in verse 13. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. This is to be our guest list Why? Because it's God's guest list. We are the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. That's why we're to invite them because that's who we are spiritually. Spiritually we are We are poor and blind. We have nothing to contribute. There is nothing we can do. Except there's receive by faith the free, gracious, generous invitation of God. See the same kind of pattern in, verse, in, in the next chapter. If you just sort of flip your eyes over to the beginning of chapter 15. 
This is how it begins. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. More food. So who is it who eats with Jesus? Sinners. Who's attracted to Jesus? Sinners. Who's offended by Jesus? Religious people. And then Jesus tells these three stories of grace, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Remember the lost sheep gone off astray and the shepherd leaves the 99 behind and goes to seek. That's who we are, lost, in danger. And it's not even that we're kind of hunting around to see if we can find Jesus. No, Jesus has to come and find us. We are blind to his glory and we are lame. We have no ability to come back to him. He has to go and get us and fetch us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are spiritually bankrupt, spiritually blind, incapable of doing good, even of choosing good? Do you recognize God's generous grace to you? Here's the test. Here's how you can tell whether you've truly understood God's grace. Very simple test. Who comes to your house for dinner? Is it just people like you? Is it your rich neighbors? Is it people who can pay you back in some way? Or is it the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind? Is it people from across generations? Is it people from across sectarian divides? Is it people from different social classes? Is it the needy in your context? That's the sign that you've understood who you are and you've understood God's grace to you. The test is not whether you can articulate sound theology, whether you know your Westminster Catechism. It's not whether you have great spiritual gifts or raise your hand when in praise. Test is very simple. Who comes to your house? Who eats with you? Radical hospitality begins with radical grace. It's not radical hospitality is not some ideal that we have to achieve. We're not sending you away with a task that you've somehow got to screw up your will to see if you can pull it off. It's what happens when you truly grasp your desperate plight and God's amazing grace. So we've come to the end of our week together. And I wonder how God is speaking to you. If you were here on Wednesday, remember we saw the story of the woman who uh, anoints the feet of Jesus in the home of Simon the Pharisee. And I wonder on Wednesday, if you were here, whether you identified with that woman. Kind of overwhelmed by her shame and her guilt. And maybe that's you. You feel like your sins are crushing you. Or maybe it's dawning on you that actually you're like Simon the Pharisee. 
confident in your own righteousness. And today, I wonder who you identify with. Do you see yourself as, as the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, the spiritually poor, needy, desperate sinner, helpless and hopeless? Or maybe it's dawning on you that actually you're not, you're, you're really you're like those religious leaders, jockeying for positions of honor. The next thing that happens in Luke's gospel, as I said a moment ago, is that we get these three stories. And the final one is the famous one, the story of the prodigal son. You remember the story? Two sons, the younger son uh, wants to go off and live at large and so he demands his inheritance and goes off seeking pleasure and fun until his life ends up in ruins he's feeding the pigs and so he decides to go back to his father perhaps he can be a servant in his father's house but of course his father comes running to greet him embraces him as a son, throws a party for him. Meanwhile, the elder brother, he's faithfully been plugging away at home, doing his duty. He's outraged. Why would this feckless son be thrown a party? And so he refuses to come in. His father has to go out to him. Try and persuade him to come in and join the party. Now usually we, it's very easy for us to emphasize the differences between those two sons. But actually they have a lot in common. In fact, I think what they have in common is more important than what, they have, what makes them different. Because both of them think of themselves as servants not sons, as slaves and not sons. The younger brother sees himself as a slave and he wants to break free. So off he goes and he ends up in a mess. The older brother also sees himself as a servant. In verse 29 of chapter 15, he says, all these years I've been slaving for you. That's how he sees himself, as a slave of his father, doing his duty, earning his way. What neither of them realize is that their father is a loving, generous, welcoming father. Of course, that's a picture of God. Our God is a loving, generous, welcoming Father. And what does he do in the story? He throws a party. He puts on a feast. I wonder who it is that you identify with. Perhaps you're that younger son You've been living at large, being wild, trying to break free. 
living a life pursuing pleasure. But despite all of that, you feel lost. Your life feels a bit of a mess. I want to invite you, in fact, not me really, me, the Lord Jesus Christ this evening is inviting you to come home, to come to the Father, to feel his embrace, to join the party, come home to a Father who loves you. Or perhaps you feel actually that you're like the elder brother, always diligent. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home and You've never missed, you know, you're, you're there, unless you're, unless you're on death's door, you're there every Sunday, doing your duty. But it feels like a burden. You're trying to earn your way to prove yourself. And it's crushing you. It's so striking that the father in the story, he, he goes out to meet his the prodigal, the younger son coming home, but he also goes out to the older brother to urge him to come in. And maybe this evening that's what happened, what happening. God the Father is coming to you now through my words, urging you to come in, to give up your pride, to give up your pretensions, to give up your efforts of your attempt to prove yourself and come to the embrace of a loving father to see his love writ large on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come and receive Christ. Come and receive Christ this evening. In a moment we're going to sing and it's a song that speaks of what we have and you know there are so many blessings uh, involved uh, in coming to Christ, in responding to the gospel of forgiveness and of, of community, of purpose, of fulfillment, of righteousness but most of all what we get is Christ himself. What a gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give than Christ. He is my joy, my righteousness, and freedom. Can I, if you want to respond to that invitation that comes to you now, can I encourage you as we sing in a moment? To, uh, to make your way out into the prayer tent so that someone can pray with you. It may be that you've come with somebody, some friend or a family member, and you'd like that you just drag them along with you. Ask them if they would pray with you. Uh, but move out to the prayer tent so that you can, you can make, uh, respond to that invitation so that you can come. But in the meantime, let me pray. Father, as we come to the close of this week, we thank you for the way that you have spoken to us through your word, for the way that you are now speaking to us through your word.
I pray for all of us that we might go with a renewed sense of your grace and therefore a renewed commitment to share that grace around the meal table with those in need. But I pray particularly for those who, uh, who feel lost, like the younger son, who have done their best to, to, to leave behind the things of Christ and to live a life of freedom and pleasure, but have only discovered that, that their life is a mess, that it is empty, and are feeling that invitation to come and feel your embrace. Please, would you draw them this evening? If that's you, then, 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 then let's pray. Father, would you receive us, prodigal people, sinners, in need of your grace? We've made a mess of our lives. Would you receive us, welcome us, embrace us? And if we're the elder brother, diligent, faithful, and yet never really knowing you as a father, thinking of ourselves as servants, earning our way into your uh, approval. Uh, we come too. We leave behind our pride. We believe behind our self-righteousness. We come to embrace the grace that is ours in Christ. We come to embrace Christ. I pray that there might be many tonight who leave knowing Christ, enjoying Christ and knowing that they are welcome in that great party that begins in the life of your people but which will reach a wonderful climax when Christ returns and go on into eternity as we enjoy an everlasting feast in your presence. Amen.